Hello, my name is Justin LeClue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today, we're talking about a very important filmmaker. We're talking about... <laughs> oh, Ingmar Bergman. Ingmar Bergman. Oh, wow. I like... So, Will... Not that, was a a, that was a bit of a... No, I love Ingmar Bergman. Okay. Uh, I'm just saying, you know, I think that's what a lot of the, the kids out there today are going to think. Well, I think that people are listening for us to re-energize them. And to do that, we brought in a special guest, Ingmar Bergman expert, Dan Berube. <laughs> yeah. And, and guys, I just wanted to say on behalf of all of your listeners, finally... <laughs> Finally, a white guy with glasses is here to speak truth to power about the canon of European it, and American art. It feels like a trinity, like we're all going to hold hands and like a beam of light will shoot up. Well, and it's not just that, too. We're finally recognizing a Swedish director. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, well, let, you know, let's tackle it right now. What do you think of when you think of Ingmar Bergman? I think <clears throat> of uh, Woody Allen and I think of boredom. Dan? Well, I love Ingmar Bergman. That's why I'm on the show. So my answer will be skewed. But I would say, if I was going along with Will, probably Woody Allen, Robert Altman, and mm-hmm. and Boredom. But no, I, I don't. I'd like that. to add that I like Ingmar Bergman. Those are just the <laughs> reflex things that I think about when I think of him. Right. Well, I'll jump in and say that pretty much the same thing is that I remember when I used to work in a video store, we were talking about uh, Bergman's film Wild Strawberries, and I'm like, you know, but his films are only 90 minutes long. Like they're not that long. You can watch them. And my coworker was like, yeah, but they feel like they're seven hours. <laughs> and it's not shocking to say that his films are slow because they are. Yes. And we, for this episode, watch The Seven Seal, arguably his most famous film, other than maybe Persona. I mean, the thing that's the most iconic in Bergman's work is evident in The Seven Seal. Like death playing chess with yeah. a guy. I don't know. That's the most famous image. You can see it on a shirt at Hot Topic near you. <laughs> or in Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Or in The Last Action Hero. Uh, classic. That's where My people My favorite Ingmar really Bergman film. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we watch The Serpent's Egg, which... I believe is his only Hollywood English language film, technically. Well, unless you count The Touch. I believe that was a Swedish production. Okay. It was a Swedish production, yeah. So The Seventh Seal. I think this was... Why did you pick The Seventh Seal, Will? Just because it's the most famous one. uh, And I feel like it's one that articulates a lot of the themes that run through his work, specifically The Silence of God. And Dan, is The Seventh Seal one of your favorite of his films? It was the first one that I saw. I think I was going to say I don't find him that boring and I've never found him that boring because I came to his stuff at the right age. Are you going to be one of those guys that's like, boredom is a state of mind? No, because I find Antonioni excruciatingly boring. Mm -hmm. I like Tarkovsky, but I find him boring. Mm -hmm. Uh, I find Belatar boring, even though I love Belatar. But uh, I've never found Bergman that boring relative to other kind of slow cinema auteurs. Well, I'd like, I think it's just because the perception that he's boring kind of comes around the fact that he was the first art cinema director of the post-war era who really uh, uh, penetrated American popular culture and as such was perceived as being difficult and opaque because there wasn't much of a frame of reference for it. Yeah. Uh, and that and that his contemporaries at that time were like Kurosawa and, and Fellini. A few others. And Fellini, and those are both extremely fun filmmakers. And also though. the fact that uh, Bergman was dealing with 
very heavy, serious subject matter like God and death and uh, difficult family relations. But we should jump in right now is that those kind of themes that Bergman tackled, it didn't really come to fruition until further on in his career. Because The Seventh Seal, the film that most people consider like his classic, was I believe his like 16th film that he directed. And that when he started, he was really making a product. And from interviews that I've read, he said that a lot, that he's making a product. He's just kind of churning it out. And when he first started being as a screenwriter, he was actually mentored by Hollywood screenwriters and writing in that mold. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> so, like, I don't know. Have you seen some of his early work? No, I haven't. Uh, the earliest of his films that I've seen is uh, Sawdust and Tinsel mm -hmm. or Summer with Monica, whichever one comes first. And I've seen about the first five minutes of his first movie. But, like, the first one that really penetrated the, I guess, the world consciousness would have to be Smiles on a Summer Night. Because that's the one that won a prize at Cannes. Mm -hmm. And I think that led to the conditions where he could make a movie like Seventh Seal. And when you talk about, like, Bergman, people don't usually think of, like, his comedies or his romances. And he did a lot of those. Yeah, he did a lot of different kinds of movies. Like, mm -hmm. The Seventh Seal, I think, uh, is an overlap between a couple of different modes of what Ingmar Bergman does. And I think Smiles of a Summer Night is, is an outlier relative to his other kind of early films. Like, I don't think Smiles of a Summer Night really has a lot in common with most of his best movies. And that, that's maybe his most boring movie for me also. Smiles of a Summer Night? Yeah. Wow. Because it's, it's a not funny comedy. <laughs> oh, really? You don't think it's funny? No, not really. Oh, geez. People are like throwing the computer across <laughs> the room at this point. All the Bergmaniacs out there. <laughs> All the Bergmaniacs. Hashtag, uh... Something that I sort of want to get at here is I feel like uh, I don't hear people talk about Ingmar Bergman much anymore, mm -hmm. certainly. And when I think of sort of mid-century auteurs that cinephiles talk about a lot, I think of somebody like Jean-Luc Godard or Francois Truffaut. Uh, or even Tarkovsky. Or, yeah, or Tarkovsky. I feel like, and I'm not quite sure why it is that Ingmar Bergman, maybe it's wrong to say he's fallen out of fashion, but he's somebody that maybe we take for granted. I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that the things that he was preoccupied with, like the death of God, um, were concerns that were in, let's say, upper middle class pseudo intelligentsia circles mm. um, were more relevant then than they are now. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I feel like it's not it's not very fashionable to be debating, you know, why can God be why? Where is God? Because now the people who watch Ber who would watch a Bergman movie have kind of given up on God. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I think the fact that he was made like parodied in The Last Action Hero and Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey is a symptom of the fact that he became a punchline because <laughs> he was this very self consciously uh, like serious adult filmmaker dealing with what were thought to be lofty uh, mm -hmm. themes for sort of bougie art at the time and i feel like that's sad like there's something um that's kind of anti-intellectual in the um I, let's say decline of bergman's standing in the in cinephilia well i think that people they just see it as kind of pretentious and that's the thing that's really stopping them for absorbing their work i was reading about in sweden they're kind of like a little bit embarrassed by him and because he's like the crusty old grandfather that you have to appease. And especially The Seventh Seal, um, I was reading a biography uh, about Bergman and when The Seventh Seal came up, a lot of critics and filmmakers are like, oh, it's such a cliche now. It doesn't really work. It, wait, na who's saying that? I don't remember. It's some okay. Swedish name. I can't repeat that. Is it? Is it like a current day person? Yeah, current day Swedish filmmaker. Okay. 
Um, oh, I think it was Matt Sundin, uh, <laughs> forward from the Toronto Maple Leafs. <laughs> Wait, what? It was the Swedish chef from the Muppets. I think it was Swedish berries. <laughs> all right, all right. We're doing a Flophouse riff here, and I'm going to shut this shit down. <laughs> and so what did you say? When was the last time you watched a Seven Seal, Will? Uh, before this week, I probably saw it like five or six years ago with the Lightbox, when they were doing their 100 best movies of the century. The perfect place to watch a Bergman film, trapped in a cinema where nothing else can distract yeah, you. Yeah, where I'm not on my phone, you know. <laughs> yeah. And what did you think watching it this time? Uh, I think that it's it's obviously a great movie. It's mm. a beautiful film. I respect it a great deal. I think uh, Bergman's preoccupations are not necessarily mine. Mm-hmm. So I found it a little difficult to connect to on that level. Uh, so because you're like, God doesn't exist, so I don't really care. Well, I mean, I don't want to put it so uh, so crudely as that. Because <laughs> I feel like God is like, I feel like God is a subject that's worth uh, debating. At the same time, I don't I don't find myself having the same um, existential crises about mm-hmm. how can how can a benevolent God ignore us like this. All right, Dan, jump in and you'd say why Seven Seals still as important as the day it came out. Well, I actually kind of agree with Will on a lot of that. <laughs> God damn it! Even though I found the movie a lot more fun watching it this time than mm-hmm. the first time that I watched it, however many years ago, or even the second time that I watched it. I mean, something that you never think about Bergman is that a lot of his films are comedic and there's like jokes in them whether you find them funny or not yeah <laughs> he's like trying and even seven seal has some it has that great scene where death cuts down a guy from the yeah tree. that's like yeah. a Looney yeah. tunes gag yeah. <laughs> yeah that's that's something that i discovered the second time that i watched the movie and when i had gotten over the reputation a little bit and was mm-hmm. able to see the movie kind of more objectively i was gonna say uh when i first got into ingmar bergman or when i was maybe at the peak of my ingmar bergman fandom i was really kind of under the spell of like existentialism and I really liked those mid-period Woody Allen movies a lot. So you were reading like Albert Camus's uh, The Stranger? You're French and you think it's pronounced Camus? <laughs> what I do is that when I say French it, I overcompensate <laughs> by making it sound as English, you know, to make you uh, plebes. Plebes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the exact word I was thinking of. <laughs> Be like, oh yeah, yeah, Albert yeah. Camus. Yeah, well, I yeah, I was reading Albert Camus and... Uh, <laughs> Camus? And, is that how you say it? Yes, yeah, sorry. Camus? Oh, okay, sure. I don't know. <laughs> I think it's Camus, yeah. Okay. Uh, I was reading that kind of stuff, and I was very uh, brooding, and uh, I've definitely leveled out a lot since then. That was maybe five or six years ago. And back uh, then, you were probably wearing a lot of black, and we're kind of, and we're kind of writing a lot of poetry. And yeah, like, something like Nobody that. understands yeah. me. My parents don't understand me. I, I considered wearing a beret. Yeah, no. Uh, I, no, but that was just a weird part of my personality that I couldn't really reconcile with other parts of my personality, maybe. But now I'm not really in that same headspace, and mm-hmm. I, I still appreciate his stuff. Mm-hmm. artistically, uh, maybe even more than I did then, even if I don't identify with the sort of simplistic philosophy. So what you're trying to say is spouses. that when you approach the film, you kind of do it objectively, and you're like, this is a good-looking film, while you're not connecting with it emotionally. I think there is movies are good-looking, and I think they do really interesting things with form uh, in a more theoretical sense, which is not maybe something that you want to talk about on this podcast, but also <laughs> the way that they engage with different kind of poetic and theatrical traditions from within the sort of style mm. of European art cinema, I think is really interesting. The other thing that struck me that maybe made it a little difficult to connect on an emotional level for me was, and I don't mean this as an insult, but it's not a subtle film. And Bergman is not a subtle filmmaker. Like his, his work is very, like it's, it's right in your face. Yeah. Like, you think Bergman will be, like, subtle and a lot of subtext, which there is, but most of the emotions are right in your face. Well, another thing that I think really links him to the to the post-war era where he was coming from was his 
very heavy use of symbolism. Mm. I think in I think of in the Wild Strawberries when the professor who's revisiting his life is at one point given a clock which has literally stopped as if to signify that hit time is up for him. Or I mean, in this one, playing chess with death. Yes, the, it's such a heavy symbol. Or the fact that the sort of redemptive characters in it are named Mary and Joseph. Yeah, uh, <laughs> and have a small child that they're always playing with. Yeah. Wink, wink. Nudge, Heavy nudge. symbolism, I feel, is not really in fashion anymore. No. And when I, I was watching Autumn Sonata on the weekend, and I feel like Bergman's work resonates for, with me more, like, go, moving into the 60s and 70s when it became more about interpersonal relationships. But Autumn Sonata is about the a relationship between a mother and her daughter. Um, it's Ingrid and, Bergman, uh, much to the confusion of everyone. Yeah. And Liv Ullman. Yeah, and kind of as years of tension comes to a head during a, a weekend together. And I was I was struck by how everything in the relationship is expressed in the dialogue of that movie, which I think kind of carries over into some of those mid-period Woody Allen movies that are 100%. so didactic. Yeah, he was a, an Ingmar Bergman cover band in the 70s, basically, uh, as was Robert Altman at times. Although Altman, I think, veered more towards the kind of magical symbolist side of Bergman's The persona side? Persona yeah. and um, and the magician and the silence and mm-hmm. some of his really um, symbolist, as in like the ni- late 19th century, early 20th century poetic movement symbolism. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the biggest, the single biggest influence on Ingmar Bergman is probably Strindberg, the Swedish playwright, who had two modes. This is going to maybe get boring, so you want to trim it. <laughs> no, 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 this is good. This is good, yeah, yeah. Bring, I, bring the knowledge, bring yeah. the knowledge. Well, early in Strindberg's career, he was kind of like an Ibsen-esque realist, and he wrote these kind of naturalist chamber dramas. Mm-hmm. And then later in his career, he broke with naturalism, and he started making these crazy psychedelic symbolist plays, which were considered proto-expressionist and proto-surrealist. So mm-hmm. he made a dream play, a ghost sonata, and Dance with the Devil, I think they were called, mm-hmm. or something like that. And... The Dance of Death, sorry. Uh, Dance of the Devil is like a Robert Rodriguez movie or something. <laughs> but, uh, and, so, and so those... All right, let's talk about Robert Rodriguez. <laughs> He's kind of the new Ingmar Bergman. Yeah, and I would also say Ingmar Bergman is kind of the Michael Bay of Swedish. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, continue. Oh, yeah, so uh, so I think what's interesting, or one of the things that's interesting about Bergman is that he, not, he didn't move from naturalism to symbolism. He kind of went back and forth throughout his career, and then he finally reconciled them in movies like Fanny and Alexander, which is his sort of magnum opus from the early 80s that has both these kind of strange, surreal, supernatural passages and uh, this very well sort of fleshed out family drama. The movie of his that I think hit me most on an emotional level was Scenes from from a Marriage, um, which, you know, the first 45 minutes or so, Liv Ullman and Erlen Josephson have this idyllic marriage and then all of a sudden 45 minutes in, Erlen Josephson's Erlen Josephson just walks out on her in a very cruel way, which I think actually Bergman did in his own real life. Right? Well, uh, reading about Bergman, he was an asshole, which yes. seems to be a theme about yeah. all the, like in the Magic Lantern, the uh, biography that he wrote, the, in the Magic Lantern, the autobiography that he wrote, it's a huge, like, woe is me, my childhood was terrible. I saw an interview with him once where he said that for him, puberty ended at age 60. Yeah, well, he always <laughs> talks said, I'm a child. But the thing is, he treated his children like garbage. Yeah. And, like, he wasn't there for him. A very selfish individual. And also the many beautiful women that he had relationships with. Many I of which he had five marriages? It, yeah, and, and one of his earliest kind of serious long-term relationships that I know of was Harriet Anderson, who <laughs> went on to star in a lot of his movies and was yeah. considered, like, one of the most beautiful people and in the world. And Liv Ullman was recently the subject of a documentary about her long relationship with him called Liv and Ingmar. Yeah. Um, 
And they remained friends to the end. That's true. That's true. But Harriet Anderson, yeah. uh, I think, had a more tumultuous relationship with Bergman. Uh, and it, it's a, it is definitely hard to, especially in 2016, it's a little harder to take the sort of woes of a filmmaker seriously when he just has this string of beautiful celebrity girlfriends and wives. I do feel, though, his movies are pretty, like, hard on their evil male characters. Well, not evil, but they're, they're, they're bad male characters. Like, Scenes from a Marriage, I don't think is forgiving of Erlen Josephson. Oh, yeah, I think a lot of people would probably disagree with me, but I think that he wrote a lot of very well-fleshed-out uh, parts for women as well, and that was one of the yeah. great strengths of his filmography. <laughs> so, you know, he can be an asshole in real life, but we're just judging the work, guys. Yeah, right. and, and as we all know, if you do good work, you're automatically a good person. <laughs> <laughs> we should just move on to The Serpent's Egg, because we're talking about how, you know, he was kind of a bad person, and he took slights, like, reading about he was angry on set all the time, like, they were not calm sets, he would yell at his actors... And, but at the but same, he had the same crew that worked with him over and over and over again. But maybe they just got used to it. No. He had a, a, an expanded crew on the Serpent's Egg, because according to... Okay, I'm just wondering uh, what both of you thought of the Serpent's Egg and whether you liked it at all, before we dig into the backstory. I didn't and, particularly like it, no. No, okay. I didn't really like it either. It almost feels I like someone <laughs> doing a Bergman imitation. Kind of, yeah. I, this was my second time watching it. I really hated it the first time. Mm-hmm. And this time I found it interesting in a way that I didn't before. But I, I didn't, I still didn't love it. Give me cabaret any day. <laughs> I thought Serpent's Egg needed uh, more action scenes, and it needed a guy who is not David Carradine. Yeah, so David Carradine's probably the worst part of it. And well, we should talk. What is the plot of Serpent's Egg? Okay, so the Serpent's Egg is a movie set in the twenties in uh, Weimar Germany in Berlin, in this very stylized version of Berlin that was actually a series of sets that were built in Munich, um, and. It is about a, it's about an acrobat played by David Carradine who has a really cool earring. (laughs) A theme that... A very uh, Harrison Ford sort of earring. (laughs) A theme that Bergman liked to tackle a lot, which was traveling artists going from town to town. Oh yeah. There's like dozens of movies that had that subject. And and that's one of a lot of links between The Serpent's Egg and The Seventh Seal that I noticed watching them close together this time uh, Mm -hmm. in the way that they try to show they they both have a lot of portent and they both are all about building this atmosphere of decay and of a world kind of collapsing in on itself uh but so yeah it's about david carradine as uh, who's this very uh, uh very attractive uh, acrobat oh yeah who uh <laughs> <laughs> who is also jewish uh that's right w- yeah pointing out because <laughs> i think otherwise he should have been played by max von Sydow. so his brother-in-law uh commits suicide and he moves in with his sister uh, played by... Vice versa. His brother commits suicide and he moves in with his sister-in-law. Oh, yeah, sorry. His sister-in-law. And we should clarify here, for people who are listening to this episode and for some reason have never watched a Bergman film, when I would think of Bergman, I would think of, like, very static and slow. <laughs> and that's not really his style at all. Where, especially in The Serpent's Egg, he's all about, like, zooms and, like, crazy camera moves and stuff like that. I mean, like it does that. actually seem derivative of Cabaret. Like, <laughs> yeah, it like, does, I'm yeah. not making that up, right? No, it, it's a very, it's a similar setting and a similar vibe in, in some ways. It also, to me, is derivative of some of the stuff that was going on in the new German cinema, and it looks ahead to some of Fassbender's stuff that he did shortly after when the serpent's egg came out kind uh, of like these seeds in brothels uh, yeah and, just, and decay and suffering yeah the decay of pre and immediately post-war berlin uh, specifically in the brd trilogy and in despair which was another mm-hmm. uh international co-pro that was in english it was an adaptation of a nabokov novel and it's set in the 30s in berlin and this uh, the serpent's egg was also a film that was produced by king kong himself dino de Laurentiis. <laughs> 
Because supposedly Dino really wanted Bergman to make a movie for him. And I think, did Bergman not make this movie because uh, he was a tax exile from, from that, Sweden? That's what I was trying to get to, is that uh, I'm not sure of all the details, but for some reason there was a situation that bubbled up that Bergman hadn't paid his taxes or something like that, and he was so embarrassed that he fled Sweden? Yeah, apparently he moved to Paris, and then he thought it wasn't gloomy enough, so he moved to Munich. That's how David Carradine explains it on the DVD of The Serpent's Egg. <laughs> and I would just point out that even if you never watched The Serpent's Egg, which you probably shouldn't unless you've seen like 20 other Ingmar Bergman movies, you should at least watch the Making of featurette, which is just interviews with Liv Ullman and David Carradine, mm. and it is a fascinating documentary. So David Carradine takes a job with a, with a doctor... Sort of a Dr. Mengele-like <laughs> character. And, and what this movie does is it sort of projects backwards from World War II onto the conditions of Berlin in the 20s. And there's a, there's a bit of a surprise ending that sort of foreshadows something that might happen in Germany pretty soon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> pretty, pretty soon the children are going to rise and yeah. we're going to have a revolution and who knows what might happen. Yeah. Wink. <laughs> it's it's fairly obvious. That's the thing, right? Is that like yeah. we were talking about how Bergman is not a subtle filmmaker, but this is his most Hollywoodish like. Huh? Huh? Uh, I actually feel like the revelations about the Doctor should have like hit me harder than they did. Don't you? Yeah, in Images, uh, the book that Bergman wrote, uh, just writing about his own films. He talks about how he thought this was his masterpiece, like right up to when it was released. Oh, dear. Yeah. Which, so was he very disappointed then? He was, mostly yeah. of the way that people um, received it. Okay. And, it, and it actually receives, I think, two or three times as much space in his autobiography as The Seventh Seal. Yes. I was flipping through the index and looking at uh, how much he talks about these two movies, and mm -hmm. The Serpent's Egg was really nagging him for years and years, up until the 2000s, I think, when he sort of came to peace with it. Uh, because it was his first big-budget movie. Uh, it was his second English-language movie after The Touch, which was universally kind of reviled. Uh, and so this was his chance to prove that he could make these kind of crossover international art films that weren't just mm -hmm. playing to a very niche market of mm -hmm. kind of, uh, you know, the intelligentsia. And he failed. He, he failed uh, to make something accessible or good. Yeah, <laughs> I but, agree. <laughs> but it's a very interesting movie if you like Ingmar Bergman and are interested in seeing him try to revise the German cinema of the 20s, which I didn't realize was as big of an influence on him as it was, but specifically Fritz Long, Pabst, uh, von Stroheim of the Blue Angel and Marlena Dietrich fame. And yeah, and it's, it's even got a scene where Lee Volman goes and talks to a priest who tells her about how God isn't listening to our prayers. So it also has a scene. even got some Bergman touches in there. <laughs> where David Carradine crushes a man's head with an elevator and then gets splattered with blood. And you see his butt at one point. So. <laughs> I actually also wrote down that you see his butt in my notes. Yeah. <laughs> the real highlights. And, and his junk from behind. That's um, true. You see it like between his legs. <laughs> Also, I would like. I wasn't to... going to go there, but since you did, that opened the floodgates for me. I would like to point out that um, the priest at one point says, "We must pray to each other for the forgiveness that our remote God denies us," which is like a parody of Ingmar Bergman dialogue, and yeah. it's tossed off as Liv Ullman is like leaving a room. Like he just says that as like, a, "All right, see you later." Oh, also the movie co-stars America's sweetheart himself, Gert Froba, uh, Goldfinger, uh, and uh, the villain from Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. <laughs> Yeah, and he, he's great in it. I don't know what else to say about Serpent's Egg. 
Uh, Dan? You, well, I, I think Dar- David Carradine has a lot to say about surf- <laughs> David Carradine. Oh, I cannot wait for the David Carradine imitation uh, that Dan is going to bring to the table. I don't know if I can do one, but I, I will say Imitations that, are know, a big part of this podcast. So, 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 <laughs> would you like to hear my Ingmar Bergman? Uh, I, 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 you, I am Ingmar Bergman. <laughs> very, that was very good. Yeah. I, I kind of hyped you up as a rich little of the <laughs> Cinema Club. Yeah. So famous Asian-American actor David Carradine uh, <laughs> of Kung Fu fame. Um is in this movie, and this was, uh, he says that, you know... Well, we should point out, too, the reason that uh, Bergman actually cast David Carradine, not because of his kung fu work... Which was forthcoming at the time. (laughs) No, he'd already done it. Oh, okay. But it's because he starred in Bound for Glory, the Hal Ashby film about Woody Gut... I can't say... Guthrie. Guthrie. Guthrie, all right. Yeah, American folk hero Woody Guthrie. Um, Well, he's great in it. He's great in The Serpent's Egg. Uh, No, he's terrible in it, and... uh, (laughs) And so um, he is an apologist for the movie, and Liv Ullman is, is, I would say, a realist. And so this making of feature on the DVD is uh, of the Serpent's Egg is a back and forth between the two of them, where Liv Ullman is constantly undercutting what David Carradine says. At one point, David Carradine says, uh, Liv Ullman and archival footage of Ingmar Bergman. At one point, David Carradine says, you know, uh, when you're making them, I can't do it. Well, yeah, sorry, Will. I'm no Will Sloan. Uh, you can maybe redo these, and we'll just dub them in after. Like, you doing David Carradine? You'll just be talking, and Will's dubbed voice will be yeah, laid across yeah. over top of you. He says something like, "When you're making a movie, you either go for power or eternity." And uh, you know, this what wasn't the hell? this wasn't gonna get me any. He's you know, he's a he has a lot of Eastern wisdom. But he was saying, you know, uh, when I was making this movie, I wasn't gonna it wasn't gonna help my career in Hollywood, so it wasn't about power, but. I was working with Ingmar Bergman, so I was shooting for eternity. I oh. see. Um, well, um, here we are watching a serpent egg today. <laughs> and then it immediately cuts to a clip of Ingmar Bergman saying, you know, I don't really expect my movies to last that long. They're kind of something that you use today. It's like a piece of furniture. <laughs> so he's somehow less pretentious than David Carradine in that moment. Hmm. Um, but also, uh, the best quotation was probably, well, Liv Ullman said, they come from two different worlds. They were fascinated with each other, but they never should have worked together. <laughs> which makes it sound like... Like, like they were lovers? Herzog and Kinski or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, David Carradine, every article I read about this film, the thing that he was most famous for on set was falling asleep between takes. Oh, a regular Wong Jing. <laughs> and by the way, I haven't gotten through this or even attempted, but he's the only person that does a commentary track on the DVD, David Carradine. It's like a oh solo commentary track, which I can only uh, assume is fascinating. Because in the making of, he spends a lot of time talking about how he got special souls put in his shoes that he could do that stunt where he jumps off a balcony. That's a great stunt. Uh, except except he also at one point says, you know, I'm pretty much an acrobat, which is so not true. I've never seen someone more awkward when they are just running around in a movie than David Carradine in this movie. Well, David Carradine is a kung fu star. Yeah, Come on, yeah. guys. Have you seen Circle of Iron? <laughs> but, it, but it is Steven Seagal-esque when he is <laughs> running and he just doesn't know what to do with his arms in this movie at any given moment. Uh, so what he said was... It was also just a brilliant moment in his, square brackets, Ingmar Bergman's career to shoot a picture in English, which is the language of movies, okay? <laughs> maybe if there's a problem with the picture, the problem is, so maybe if there's a problem with the serpent's egg, the problem is that pictures have to return their investment. And an Ingmar Bergman picture never had that huge an audience that it would justify spending that kind of money. Well, you know what? I think we should lay down brass tacks. Why is serpent eggs bad? So I guess the the thumbnail summary of why it's bad is that it's just kind of, it is actually pretty boring, and it's so, even more than, than it being slow, it's just very punishingly unpleasant. There's mm-hmm. a lot of, like, 
animal guts and people screaming. I think a horse got killed for the movie. Like Yeah, there's uh, there's blackface in the movie. At one point, uh, he goes to this kind of decadent Weimar cabaret, and there's this all-woman blackface band playing in this long red tube for some reason. Mm-hmm. There, It's also a mix of ideas that are sort of either half-baked or were done by Bergman much better elsewhere. And it just, it also, I think, fundamentally feels like Bergman doesn't have that much of an attachment to this lofty theme that he's kind of latching himself onto. Like, And I don't buy his depiction of Weimar Germany. No, and he's admitted that it looks nothing like what Berlin looked like mm-hmm. and that he was he was basing it more on dreams that he had about this sort of mysterious shadow city than he was Berlin. He actually regrets setting the movie in Berlin. It would have been nice if he made a movie that was more like, more dreamlike. <laughs> Yeah, it's a it's, real dark city. It's yeah, <laughs> a real Tim Burton's Batman. <laughs> this is a much more literal uh, Bergman movie than we're used to from his more kind of surreal, moody, like mode, mm-hmm. like persona and stuff. So after this movie, Bergman made Autumn Sonata. He made Face to Face. He made Fanny and Alexander, which is pumping out hits. Yeah. Uh, and then after that, he did a lot of work for TV and sat on his island for a while. And then died. And then died. Well, some of his best movies were works for TV. Fanny and Alexander and Scenes from a Marriage were both miniseries. Also, his last movie, Saraband, have you ever seen it? His sequel to Scenes from a Marriage? I haven't seen it yet. I think it's quite powerful. I, I, yeah, I think a lot of people mm-hmm. would agree. I have, well, you, Both of you are looking at me, and I have not seen either, so I cannot comment on that. I saw Saraband in a movie theater. You know what? We know you, you were in New York. It, no, no, it wasn't. No, I saw it in Toronto as a 16-year-old. Oh, really? Yeah, during its original theatrical run, and I felt very privileged to be able to see a Bergman movie first run. Oh, uh, what a pretentious think, little jerk. No. I was. Uh, and then I think he died maybe two years later. At the time, I was probably rewatching Pulp Fiction. Or... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, can I throw a snatch in the DVD player you were, one more you time? You were getting into these really cool independent directors, the Coen brothers. <laughs> yeah, Spike Jones. I was yeah. probably, you know, riding my skateboard and <laughs> playing basketball. <laughs> Never did either of those things. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, like, I wrote a skateboard. Eating pizza, probably. All right, Bergman, what are some of your favorite films of his? Because we obviously pick the iconic one and a bad one, but when you think of him and you're like, I want to watch a Bergman film, what would you recommend that you think will actually connect with the person watching? Well, I mean, the first thing I would think of is The Seventh Seal. I mean, mm-hmm. it's iconic. Oh, really? It's got all the Bergman stuff in it. It's a good movie. It's entertaining. Yeah. Uh, says a lot of good stuff. And then beyond that, uh, as I said, I love Scenes from a Marriage. I love The Virgin Spring. I love Persona. He's made, man's made a lot of good movies. You can't go wrong. I mean, I have to be honest that I, uh, I have not been in a very happy place these last few weeks. I'm getting real. <laughs> <laughs> and I watched Winter Light, at, uh, which is the second part of his Silence of God trilogy um, that deals with a priest, I guess, trying Wait. to deal with the absence of God and finding meaning in his life. And I don't know why, I watched it like 3 a.m. in the morning, when you're supposed to watch uh, Bergman films, and I just connected it in a way where its sheer simplicity kind of really moved me, even though I don't believe in God in any way, shape, or form. But that kind of frustration and depression, and the main character in Winter Light is also an asshole. And just kind of the idea that it's all meaningless, and what do we do because it's all meaningless? Ah, but at the same time, like, meaningless, this is kind of a concern that, I've always struggled with movies when people ask themselves these questions is life has no meaning and people looking for it are <laughs> we're getting what are you very talking about? We're gonna, later tonight we're gonna go see uh, Master of the Flying Guillotine <laughs> yeah but that's finding joy in your own life <laughs> yeah. but anyway Winter Light is a really good one and I feel like a dramatic one 
that is an easy recommendation to people. Yeah, if you want one of his uh, chamber films, so one of the films where he was working with a cast and crew of only about 15 people in a secluded mm. location and just focusing on character and getting these incredible performances out of Ingrid Tulin and Gunnar Bjornstrand and Max von Sydow, like his kind of repertory of really amazing actors, uh, you can't do much better than Winterlight, Through Glass Darkly, uh, and then the silence is a sort of spookier part of that trilogy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, I would say if you're interested in something more palatable, Wild Strawberries is a patient movie, but a really beautiful and, and a more humanist movie by him. And there's some dream sequences to keep you on your toes. Yeah, and then Persona is like a horror movie. I believe Persona was the only one of his movies that made the most recent Sight and Sound really? Top 100 list. Isn't that right? Because it, I think, is... It's not subtle necessarily, but it's not quite as literal-minded as his other movies, and so it's maybe aged better for certain kinds of viewers. But we've been making jokes about, like, we were watching Pulp Fiction, but if I was, like, 12, or, like, 16, like, Persona would be the one that I'm like, yeah, man, Bergman! It would hit me really hard, if only because it was referenced in Fight Club and and, uh, Mulholland Drive. It's basically the template for a lot of kind of uh, identities dissolving Mm -hmm. sort of thrillers that came after it, even though it's, it's very much a psychological portrait and not a thriller as such. So Persona was the original Fight Club, so Stan Brubay and Port Cinema Club. All I'm saying is Fight Club stole from Stan Brackage, and it also, uh, or no, sorry, that's Seven that stole from Stan Brackage. Yeah. I think uh, Fight Club's really good because it talks about the crises facing us men these days. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Someone's going to take that literally, Will. <laughs> All I was going to say is that Seven stole from Stan Brackage and Fight Club stole from Persona, so, you know. You know, you're really taking a stand on that one, Dan. Be- beautiful things can grow out of garbage uh, <laughs> everywhere you look. <laughs> And by the way, I meant beautiful things like Fight Club and Grow Out of Garbage like Persona. Yeah, I think that, no, I, I got it. Just to okay. clarify, I think Persona's garbage. <laughs> <laughs> really? You're like the Bergman is boring camp. Now I am. You guys want me over. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, we'd like to thank Dan uh, for joining the podcast. Yeah, and I know you're listening out there. You're thinking, what I, what I like about this podcast is the special magic between Justin and Will. <laughs> not so much these ringers they bring in don't worry we'll get back to that eventually <laughs> but you, not next week not you, next week and you might feel a little better about it knowing that this was a make-a-wish foundation situation <laughs> and that i am here because i'm very sick <laughs> all right chef that's enough what if one day like we switch it out and i'm like i'm here with will sloan and it's just dan but I, we never I don't think know. anyone would notice. It'd be like, yeah, it'd be like Bewitched, right? The two Darrens. <laughs> I think Case Magazine would have to fold. They'd close their doors and uh, not only delete their archives, but never produce another issue. <laughs> All right. So next week, I feel like Bergman was a little bit easy because we um, it's something that we know and we can easily talk about. So we're moving on to something a little bit more difficult. And we're going to be going through the career of Jim Carrey. <laughs> And these guys have been researching. Like, I came in and they were both just pounding back books about Jim Carrey. Um, we need to rewatch I, that A&E biography. I can honestly say that I've been researching Jim Carrey for the last 20 years of my life. <laughs> we actually joke that, like, the Jim Carrey is, like, our off week. Because, like Will said, I've been internalizing Jim Carrey. Uh, it's I, I, And I, I'm very excited to kind of see where that break happened. Where, like, suddenly I went... Jim Carrey just not for me anymore. 
Uh, that never Bruce. happened for me. <laughs> <laughs> I think I remember watching Dumb and Bruce. Dumber is still fucking funny. Dumb and Dumber oh is one God. of the funniest films and of all time. The mask really holds up also. Uh, yeah, I think Ace Ventura probably has five or ten really solid minutes in it. All the transphobic parts. Right? Yeah, that. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to be watching next week. I think we decided on Ace, Ace Ventura. Ventura. And the cable guy. That's right. Which aren't even that far apart, I believe. They're only a few years apart, but we don't want to talk about Eternal Sunshine and the Spotless Mind. Everyone's seen that. Yeah. And like I'm not gonna watch Mr. Popper's Penguins or some <laughs> some garbage. We all know that he needs to feed his kids and that he can sometimes be quiet. Uh, what about number 23? Oh, and we're also going to talk about his anti-vaccine activism. Uh, <laughs> we are not going to talk about that. Because <laughs> Will's a big anti-vaxxer. <laughs> uh <laughs> I just want to make clear that's not true. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, tune in next week for our Jim Carrey episode. Uh, my name's Justin Clue. My name's Will Sloan. And I'm Dan Burubank. Thanks for listening. Oh, you have so many notes. They're not, many, many of them are not useful. <laughs> All right, one guys, of them, let's just go. <laughs> well, this might end up in the, but one of them is just that the end of the Seven Seal is, okay, well, okay. You can do this. Mary <laughs> makes fun of Joseph's. Uh, of his visions and then he smells their horse and then it just says the end. That's the end of the sentence, <laughs> which I never noticed before, but there's a beat where he just smells their horse.